Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and I want us to begin by looking at verse 21. Luke 24, begin by looking at verse 21. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But we were hoping. Odd words that leapt from the text when I read the Gospel of Luke. The words were on the lips of two disciples on the road to Emmaus. But we were, we were hoping. We utter those words too when the outcome is not what we sought. When we left bewildered and beaten down. When the medical tests come back positive with negative news. But we were, we were hoping that the original diagnosis was wrong. When our son or our daughter is placed in harm's way in the military. But we were hoping that he would be assigned here stateside. When someone walks out and is unwilling to reconcile, unwilling to forgive. But we were hoping, hoping that it all be all right. The disciples on the road to Emmaus that day were hoping too. Look at verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. About a two-hour brisk walk, we might say. And notice the specific time on that very day. Turn back to Luke 24 and, and verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb. On the first day of the week, it's the day, the very day of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. It all happens. Everything in Luke 24 happens on the day of the resurrection. On this day, all sorts of strange things have happened. The disciples are still clueless as to what has actually taken place. The tomb has been reported to be empty. But those are taken as old wives' tales. In the midst of the confusion of the crucifixion, the burial, the disturbed tomb, the two disciples set off heading back home, seven-mile walk to Emmaus. You know, they depart at the earliest opportunity on the first day of the week. They couldn't travel on the Sabbath. This was the first opportunity they had. The Sabbath was over. In fact, the, the fact they're getting out of Jerusalem so quickly is a hint that the community of the disciples of Jesus is in danger. The whole movement of collapsing now that the rabbi has been crucified. Disappointment and grief and a crucified Messiah. That story had been written before. Yes, the disciples were headed home. Look at verse 14. And they were conversing with each other about all these things 
which had taken place. What happened after 9-11? Our worlds were shocked, rattled, changed. You didn't have a single conversation with someone on 9-11 that wasn't about the horrendous attack. The images were seared in our minds. The fire, the smoke, the catastrophe, the confusion. Our world, all of a sudden, in one day, was no longer safe. Everything had changed, and and no one seemed to be in control or know what was happening. And churches gathered together, and we prayed, and we comforted, and we discussed. Our very bedrock that day was broken. So it was for these disciples. It was a 9-11 experience to see Jesus crucified. They had been following Jesus. They had fully committed themselves, Cleopas, and I believe it's Mary, his wife, with him. They had fully committed themselves to, to claiming that this rabbi from Galilee was the Christos, the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah. Why, they had seen, they themselves had seen his wondrous miracles and that horrid image of him crucified, the confusion of the missing body. How could you not know? How could you not talk about it if your master had been crucified? Even his body now, it seemed, had been disrespected. Look at verse 15. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you were walking? And they stood still looking sad. Verse 16, literally translation is, their eyes were seized. It's a passive sense in the, to the verbal here. So it suggests their blindness, blindness is divinely imposed upon them. These disciples had seen the crucifixion of their hope. They're on the road back home to Emmaus. Going back home disappointed and defeated and discouraged and depressed because of the death, the death of their Messiah. And a stranger approaches. What world does he live in? How could he possibly not know what's happened that this rabbi so popular had been put down and crucified in Jerusalem? It was all a buzz in the city. Everybody knows what's happening in Jerusalem. What were you talking about, Jesus asked innocently enough, as if, as if he didn't already know. They stopped in their tracks in verse 17. Sadness overcame them all over again at the question. And one of them, Cloopus, said there in verse 18, are you, are you the only clueless guy in Jerusalem? Are you the only one who doesn't know what's been taking place with this rabbi named Jesus crucified? Now the body missing, the tomb is empty. What world are you living in, friend? Do you have no idea what's taking place? 
in Jerusalem. Could you have been in New York City on 9-11 and not have known what happened? That would have been impossible, wouldn't it? That's the equivalent. The unruly crowd had gathered and they had shouted in the public domain, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate himself had been involved. The Roman army had marched. There had been a parade through the city. Why, the sky itself had turned dark and the, the earth had quaked. It was a strange time in Jerusalem. Can you imagine someone being in New York City on 9-11 and saying to someone else by about four or five hours later, now what's everybody talking about? I wasn't even aware anything's taken place in New York City. Cleopas seemed to say, if you don't know what's going on in Jerusalem, you are the only guy, the only guy who doesn't know. No, Jesus says, verse 19, what things? What are you talking about? Great explanation, verse 20. Are you not aware of the things about Jesus and Nazarene, who's a, a prophet mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him? Are you not aware? Now, the strangest thing about this passage, you have to disengage for a moment and realize that Cleopas unwittingly tells the story of Jesus to Jesus. Are you not aware? There was a prophet. He did miracles. His words were powerful. He was delivered over the chief priests and the Romans. They crucified him. Are you not aware? They were so disappointed that Jesus had proved to be nothing more than another rejected prophet. How many times had Israel rejected, mistreated, and murdered her prophets? And even if Jesus could work the works of Elijah... And even if his deeds were the deeds of Moses, he's been rejected. And they're devastated. Verse 21. We were hoping. We were hoping he was going to be the one at last to redeem Israel. Behind this image is another image with which we're familiar. We were hoping he was the new Moses to lead the new Exodus. It's the image of Passover. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus are headed back to their home. And Cleopas and Mary, his wife, they have been living out the story of the Exodus themselves. They had been present with Jesus in his miracles. They had been present with Jesus in the power of his words. Look at verse 19. He was mighty in deed and word, miracles and sermons. He didn't just talk powerfully. He acted powerfully. And just as Israel had been redeemed from slavery in Egypt, 
Cleopas and Mary and all of Israel was certain, just like that first Exodus, that through Jesus, God would redeem their freedom again. Liberated from pagan domination, liberated from the Romans, free to serve God in peace and holiness. That's why crucifixion doesn't work. It wasn't only that their leader was now gone, crucified. That was bad enough, but it was more than this. Jesus was supposed to be the new Moses, the one to redeem Israel, to lead the second exodus. And his crucifixion was now a complete devastation of all they hoped and believed, cried, and prayed for. People end up on the cross when they think they're the Messiah, but they don't have the power to get it done. They had seen that story played out time and time again with would-be, could-be, should-be Messiahs, and now this one who seems so different because of his power of miracles and the power of his preaching, he ended up like the rest. They knew, or at least they thought they knew what his crucifixion meant that God had not forgiven Israel's sins, and the pagans, the Romans, were still in complete power. They were traveling up a road they thought was going to lead to freedom, and they discovered that the road was nothing more than a dead-end cul-de-sac. The path, the journey for God's people was a crucifixion, was a dead end, was a dead Messiah. How could they have been so wrong about Jesus? They had heard about the miracles. They had seen a few themselves. His words were powerful. He spoke as if he were speaking for God. He spoke as if he was God himself. And if this wasn't the rabbi who was going to set you free, there would be no rabbi to set you free. And now all this commotion about angels and empty tombs, and it was just a confusing icing on the upside-down cake of the crucifixion. But we, we were hoping. Israel had been there before, Psalm 42, as a deer pants for the water book, so my soul pants for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Hope in God. They're hoping in the Psalm too, hope in God, for I again shall praise him. Psalm 43 is the same thing. God seems awfully absent. And again in Psalm 43, hope in God, for I will praise him. But we were hoping. Verse 22, they go on to tell how the women came to the tomb and reported that his body was not there and about the angels. And the, the disciples checked it out and took it to be, well, they didn't see Jesus. Old wives' tales. Then Jesus responds in verse 25, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
You see, here's the key of the whole sermon. They've been hoping in the wrong direction all along. They thought that God would redeem them from suffering. And God was redeeming them through suffering, through the suffering of the Messiah. There it is. They were thinking all along that God would redeem them from suffering, but instead he redeemed Israel through suffering, through the suffering of the Messiah that was Israel's representative, for he did everything that Israel failed to do in obedience. And then verse 27, beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, he explained to them how the scriptures had pointed to him, his crucifixion, and his glorious resurrection. Now, don't think for a moment that Jesus is proof texting here and there. It wasn't like that at all, but rather he told the whole story of God's people and how God would redeem with the king on the strange throne of the cross. He started in Genesis and went all the way through Chronicles. Wait, why did I say Chronicles? That's the last book in the Hebrew Bible. The prophets come earlier. He goes to the beginning of the Old Testament and all the way to the end showing them that the Messiah was supposed to suffer and rise on the third day, and that was the redemption of God. He told the story in such a way that they could discover that the execution of this rabbi was not disproof of his being Messiah, but rather his crucifixion and his resurrection were, in fact, the climax of his being Messiah, his ultimate obedience to God to pay for our sins. Suppose for just a moment that you could tell the story in such a way that the cross was not an example of the triumph of paganism once again over God, but rather God's ultimate way to defeat all evil once and for all. What would you have given to have been on that road for two hours talking to Jesus? The stranger. And as he talks... They begin to put the puzzle together of the Old Testament and their hearts are strangely warmed as God is unfolding a new truth that the king is to be crucified and rise again. They were beginning that new creation, this longed for, that included and begins with the resurrection of God. They arrive at Emmaus two hours later he says, nice to talk to, to you all. I've got to move on. And they say, no, no, it's getting late. Won't you just stay with us tonight? It's already, it's just so late. You need to stay with us. He sits at the table with them. And strangely enough, the guest becomes the host. And I want you to listen to these words in verse 30. They are almost a mirror image of Luke 22 when he does the Lord's Supper. And it came about when he reclined at the table with them, he took the bread, he blessed the bread, he broke the bread, and he gave the bread. What's he do in Luke 22? He takes the bread, he gives thanks, he blesses the bread, he breaks the bread, and he gives the bread. Oh, this is a sacred and holy meal with them. And verse 31, and their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their side. I want you to look at that word there, their eyes 
were opened. We learned earlier that God had clouded their eyes in the ability to perceive and understand that it was Jesus, the Messiah. And now God chooses in the breaking of the bread to open their eyes. In the breaking of the bread. Think back to the very first meal in the Bible back in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, well, the, the grammatical similarities are too obvious to be accidental. It says in Genesis 3, 7, when the woman takes the fruit and she eats and she gives the fruit to her husband, that both of them had their eyes opened. And in Genesis, they see sin. They see that they're naked. That tale of the first meal was told over and over and over again, that death itself was traced to this moment of rebellion, and the whole creation with that first meal was subject to decay and rot and death and futility. And now we have a, another first meal on the road to Emmaus, and we have the first meal of the new creation. He takes the bread, and he blesses it, and he gives it to them and their eyes are opened, not to a broken creation, but to a restored creation. The antithesis of Genesis. Cleopas and Mary here in the story, their eyes were opened. And as their eyes are opened, the long curse is broken for all of us. And that curse which began with that first meal is broken in that last meal. And death is defeated and sin is defeated. Look at verse 32. And they said to one another after seeing him, you know, I thought it, it, my heart was, it, it was pounding. It was burning when he was speaking to us on the road, explaining the scriptures. I never heard anyone talk like that. I'm sure one said to the other. We should have known, the other one chimed in. Didn't you have that feeling that he, he spoke with such authority? Our hearts were strangely warmed. I hope your heart is strangely warmed today. I hope your heart is strangely warmed at the words of Jesus, as was theirs. When Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, that where I am there you may also be. And you know where I'm going, you know the way. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Those words strangely warm our heart. Or in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Strange words that warm our heart. Or, or Luke 23, today, today to the thief, you will be with me in paradise, forgiven sinner. Or Luke 24, 46, and he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that the repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Our hearts are strangely warm today. Words of comfort that make sense of his crucifixion and his suffering. 
But we were hoping he was the one that was actually going to redeem Israel and he ended up crucified like everybody else. No, it's unlike everybody else. For his tomb is empty. The angels have proclaimed, why are you looking for the living among the dead? There's nothing common to this story. It is a new creation. Just like Adam and Eve had their eyes opened with that first meal that led to death, in this new first meal, it leads to life. Their eyes were open to restoration and new creation. They just traveled seven miles. They run all the way back to Jerusalem. They run to tell the disciples everything they've experienced. And before they can start, they say, he's really alive. He's appeared to Simon. We know he's alive. And the, the disciples, Cleopas and Mary, say, well, he broke bread. And our eyes were open, and we saw. And all of a sudden, at the end of the story of Luke, he's standing in their midst again. Lest the reader have doubt about Cleopas and Mary or Simon Peter, at the end of the story, he stands in their midst again. Why are you troubled? And why are there doubts in your heart? Touch my hands. Touch my feet. But we were hoping. Let us pray. Oh, God... We're so grateful for this word today. And today we too come and have our eyes open and our hearts strangely warmed as we're reminded of the power of this story that's unlike any other story, a story of grace and peace. Whatever trouble's going in our heart and whatever has us unsettled today, just as Cleopas and Mary were unsettled on the way to Emmaus because the world had fallen apart. To know there's nothing this world can deal to us that will not be healed in his resurrection. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Maybe you're here today and it's your day to proclaim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior come and say, oh, I, I have open eyes. Maybe it's your day today to come and be a part of this family called First Baptist Church. We invite you to come. I'll meet you at the front. Stand together as we sing.
Just a brief word, our choir member who had to leave is doing fine. Thank you for uh, praying for Ramona during that time. She is well attended and doing great. So she is, she is she's fine. I know many of you prayed for her during the sermon because I saw your eyes closed and I appreciate your, uh, your willingness to, uh, to love her that much. Um, I'm sure I interpreted that correctly, Pastor. Is that, uh, that's right? We are, we, we are so blessed to have such, a, such an encouraging time in the life of our church. We've got lots of things happening. Just want to remind you. Oh, by the way, um, I, I mentioned that Ramona is better. Her husband, Lanny, was the one that wrote that song that they were singing during that special music, and it's his birthday today. So if you see them walking in the hallway, just, just share a word of uh, love or a pat on the back with them as well. They're, they're, a, they're a really blessed couple and, and bless us. Thank you. Today's the day we bring back our backpacks and our school supplies and our teacher supplies. So you'll see hallway tables that'll be full of those backpacks. And thank you for returning those and for being so faithful. Just a reminder that um, not this Sunday, night, but next Sunday night for all of our teachers. If you're a Sunday morning Bible study leader for preschool children, youth, adults, we meet together at four o'clock next Sunday. We're calling it Live It Out, and it's our annual teacher training. So teachers, we want you to be a part of that and look forward to you doing that with us as well. Remember that we're just a few weeks away from our Wednesday night uh, fall schedule. It will return on August the 24th, and we're starting that night with Sharkies. And uh, for the meal, it's going to be a great time. You can already go online. You can make your reservations for the meal. You can also, there's a box to click if you want to make your reservations for every Wednesday night meal so you don't have to continue to do that. You can do that as well. That's an easy box to check there if you'd like to do that. Remind our kids that on Wednesday, our, our registration opens for the different activities that you'll choose to do on Wednesday evening. So we invite you to be a part of that and, and hope you um, hope you take part. We're still taking pictorial directory pictures. And so uh, just a reminder, those of you who have appointments this week, be here for pictures. They uh, typically take your picture, then they'll bring you back and show you some pictures, and, and they'll, they, they have pictures available for purchase. Uh, just, if you don't like your pictures, just say, no, thank you. That's, that's okay to say. I don't want to buy a picture. No, thank you. Speaking of saying no, um, our re-engaged marriage emphasis starts in just a couple of weeks. And so uh, those of you who hear no occasionally from your spouse or say no occasionally to you, it's time for you to get to our re-engaged marriage experience. That's going to be on Sunday afternoon starting on August the 21st. We're going to talk during that time about all kinds of things. Even communication. Communication is so important. On the first night of their honeymoon, the husband isn't sure how to tell his wife that, well, he's got stinky feet and smelly socks. And the wife is not sure how to tell her husband that she's got really bad breath and she's been able to hide it so far. So after some soul searching on that night, the husband gathers his nerve and says, I have a confession. She draws closer to him than ever before and peers into his eyes and says, darling, so do I. He stops her and says, you've been eating my socks.
<laughs> wow. We do have two coming this morning, Jace Norris, who was just baptized, and Janie Davis. I would like to be part of our congregation today. She called in, so you can come forward or you can call in. And so I know you'll say to Jace and to Janie today, welcome to the family. Stand together for our closing prayer. If you haven't signed up for the directory, please sign up. It is an absolute no-pressure deal uh, at all. And you may or may not want to purchase pictures, but it's absolutely no pressure. I've been through it, and, and it's just there. It's just gentle, and uh, it's a good thing. We need, if you're going to get a book, you have to have your picture in the book. So that's the rule. They give us enough books for every family unit that is photographed. Let's pray. All of our hopes come down to that one rabbi on the dusty road between Jerusalem and Emmaus. Walking in sadness because of his crucifixion. Eyes blurred and vision confused. And starting with Moses and going through the prophets, he says, don't you get it? This has been God's story all along. And their eyes are opened. And their hearts are warmed. May we leave the preaching of the resurrection this morning as we end Luke. With our eyes opened. And our hearts warmed. Because the crucifixion was not an accident. But the very mastermind of the creator. That overcomes sin and death. And we are hoping. Amen.